government conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim. Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show. I'm your host for this week, Eleanor Goldfield. Vive la Révolution. Across France, millions of people are taking to the streets and blocking them in a rapidly escalating show of defiance and disdain for Macron and his oppressive neoliberal policies. Kim, an organizer from Rennes in France, joins the show to talk about the context of this growing movement and the power they hold to not only battle this system, but to build something better. Next up, Professor Richard Wolff sits down with us to discuss the myriad ways in which our economy is failing. As he points out, an empire in decline is a bumpier ride than an empire on the rise. Professor Wolff outlines the compounding traumas of living in late-stage capitalism, as well as the ongoing shift from the U.S. dollar in international trade, a global blow that will hit the arrogant city upon a hill when we're already down. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks upon the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you probably own a man. Thanks, everyone, for joining us here at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Kim, who's a French activist based in Rennes, which is west of Paris. She's involved in a feminist collective called Nous Toutes uh, 35. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. <laughs> and a part of a small organization called Autonomie des Classes, which gathers revolutionary activists around the country and publishes a magazine every two months. She's a member of an international network called Alarm Phone, which is an emergency hotline to support people while they are crossing the Mediterranean Sea. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so uh, just to give folks some some context here, because the U.S. media has been very quiet about this. Last week, the organization A More Perfect Union reported that uh, on the 23rd, there was a call by French unions for a general strike with reports of some 200 demonstrations across the country with upwards of 3.5 million people on strike. And in Paris alone, some 800,000 people turned out. And even King Charles of England's visit was postponed because things were just a little too messy. Other reports suggest that 400 security forces have been injured. Those reports conveniently don't report how many civilians have been injured, more than 450 people arrested. And over the weekend, several outlets, including Unicorn Riot, reported on massive protests in Saint-Soline, France, where tens of thousands of protesters marched against the construction of mega basins, water reservoirs that pull water from the community for the purpose of industrial agriculture, including maize. Uh, a protester in Saint-Soline told a reporter that they would be headed to Paris to also protest against Macron's retirement reforms because, quote, it is the same environmental social struggle, end quote. So, Kim, I, I wanted to get your perspective on this because in the U.S., we haven't heard a lot about this at all, of course, because this is the threat of a good example, what, what French folks are engaged in right now. And when it is reported on, you see things like what you saw recently in Bloomberg News, where they said that Macron is just, quote, trying to erase the system's deficit and boost the economy by raising the minimum age for retirement to 64 from 62. And of course, that makes it sound like Macron is really just doing his best for the people. But 
I feel like the massive protests suggest that the people in France don't agree. Could you give us an idea of what Macron is really doing or trying to do right now? Uh, yes. I think it's funny because uh, the quotes uh, you was um, saying, uh, actually, Macron tried at the beginning to say the same in France, why the reform was a good one. And I think that actually it was really clear for everyone that it was not about uh, taking care of the economy for all the people, but taking care of the economy for uh, the minority of the people in France, like the big capitalists. And I think that, yeah, Macron is actually doing his job as a French president, as a president. Like he's trying to save money for the big companies, for the capitalists. I think that it was really clear for the people because in October, we had also some strikes in France. A big company called Total, they made the biggest profits they ever made during the last two years. And... In October, there was track uh, from the worker of Total because the uh, salary was really low and uh, there is big inflation in France too. And Total had these big profits and wasn't sharing anything with the workers. So they start a strike about this. So when the, the, ref, the re retirement reform came, it was really clear for the people that there was a, a, a problem uh, with um, the wealth distribution. And so it was really clear that they were keeping money for the capitalists and not giving money to the people. And also, I think, I think that Macron is also trying, in more ideological or political point of view, trying to send the message to the population that he is a kind of king and he can do whatever he wants. He has this way, a really authoritarian way to disregard. And for the people, it's really clear since years now, really Macron style to be disregarding against the people. Yes, that's it. That sounds very much like the United States, actually. <laughs> Which is, of course, why we don't hear about it in our media, because if the media told us that you could just go on massive strikes and go out and protest in the street... That would be terrible. <laughs> they don't want us to do that. So I'm also curious because we hear a lot through alternative media, we hear about the retirement age. Of course, in the United States, the full retirement age is 67. So that's another reason they're not mentioning it. <laughs> but what else is going on? Is it just about retirement age? I mean, what other reforms, so to speak, are a part of this? Yes, there is a, a reform about uh, retirement age. And I mean... At the beginning, it's, it's the first reason people went outside. It was about the right retirement age. But there was also other reform just before, one uh, about, like in France, there is a, a pension for employed people when, when you, are, you don't have any job. Oh, unemployment. Yeah. And so the, there was a reform about it uh, just before the retirement reform. And there is also another uh, reform. It's not more a law about immigration. And uh, it's a, really a, a racist law to criminalize more the migrant people and uh, to make uh, more difficult the possibility to have papers and to work in France and to stay and uh, to settle. Um, so, yeah, there is these three. It's a kind of package. It's the same 
logic saying that uh, they want the people work or staying in France or not, depending the necessity of of bosses and capitalists. There is um, like uh, 10 days ago, Macron decided to to pass the retirement reform by force using the 49.3. It's a kind of text, a constitutional text that allow him to take the responsibility with his government to pass a law, even if the parliament doesn't agree. And since at this moment, what happened is that the movement didn't stop at all. And what started is like, a, for me, it's like a second phase of the movement, the second moment of the movement, because the strike are um, bigger since 10 days and people are more and more into the streets. The movement is bigger than, uh, than never uh, because now people are also fighting the power. I mean, like, it's not like they are not thinking now, yes, we, we want to take the power. It's not like this. But actually, they are like fighting, saying this guy is not, is not playing fair rules. Like, he's doing what he wants. So we will not stop here. And I think it's really important because maybe at the beginning it was more economic, the reason people were on the street. And now it's more and more political in the way that people are, are thinking, we want to decide. And it's really important when people start to think we can decide and we don't have to be to have rep- representative way to do it. And... I think yeah, it's a new moment of the of all the big movement uh, that starts uh, in January. Yeah, that's that's great, and um, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> um, so 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 with that, it seems like Macron has had a lot of pushback for years. How did he win the presidency again? I think that Macron wasn't el- was elected because Marine Le Pen wa- Marine Le Pen wasn't. I think that it's a, a high risk in France, uh, like the the space f- the far right is taking, and this movement can be an opportunity for the far right. So that's why it's really 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 important inside the movement to bring arguments against racism and to be really clear. And and really tough about this that there is no no any place for fascists inside the movement, and I think in in a in a situation with a lot of instability, yeah, we have to be really strong about it because the 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 enemy the the other enemy can also can also bring the the lead, and so we have uh, yeah we 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 have to be attentive and. Uh, and to be conscious and to bring discussion about racism. And for example, the the law, uh, the immigration law, they are trying to vote now. Like for weeks now, we are really bringing arguments to convince people to uh, struggle and to fight against retirement uh, reform, but also against this uh, law project. And it's not always easy to make links I think yes, we we have to stay focused on anti-racist arguments inside the movement. 
Yeah, yeah thank, thank you for, for highlighting that because I think that is very much the case here as well. So I appreciate you mm-hmm. pointing that out. You know, you're talking about these protests growing, which is fantastic. And I remember hearing about the Yellow Vest protests from, you know, several years back. And what seems different from them, as opposed to a lot of protests here in the United States, is that they don't seem to be just one type of people. There are anarchists and trade unionists and people that just, you know, work at a store. And, you know, there seem to be people from all over society. So could you talk a bit more about people who are a part of these protests and maybe what brings some of them out into the streets? I think uh, there is really different profiles into the streets now. Like I think like uh, it's really representative of the French society. The trade unions are um, making great efforts to put people on strike and into the street and for example, there is a really reformist trade union called CFDT, who actually, normally they are not really trying to organize people. Like it's more, um, they're, they're struggling a little bit inside the companies, but not so much. And always like, yeah, we will find a solution really quickly and so on. And now they are still calling people to, to be on strike and to keep going the movement. And for me, it's a really uh, interesting signal about the situation because when the reformists are not stepping back, it's like maybe something else is, is happening. And I think there is, yeah, different, a lot of different people. For example, I'm part of a feminist collective and um, as the movement starts in January and we were like, organizing the 8th of March, we start to think about how to make link between the retirement movement and the feminist issues, how to make the 8th of March really a feminist strike. And I think it was really emotional, for example, to see that in every big demonstration we made since January, we organized a feminist march inside. And there was a lot of women I never seen before. That's the profile we used to see in our movement, feminist movement, like more like about uh, 45, 60 years old women with children, big sometimes with uh, grandchildren, with, uh, don't know, um, Women were not really, uh, they are not used to, to, to be on strike because they are really uh, precarious jobs and so on. And for me also, it, yeah, it was really representative of what was happening, like kind of symbol of, okay, if there is middle-aged woman with wages really, really low, with children who are inside the street with us, it's that, yeah, it means that uh, everyone uh, is, is part of the movement. Yeah, something is happening. And also there is unemployed people. There is, a, I think there is all, all the society, not all the society because it's not a revolution right now, but there is a large part of the population. Yeah. You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. Now, back to our conversation with French organizer, Kim. 
That's fantastic. And I'm I'm curious if you think that any of it has to do with like the history and the culture of France. I mean, it seems like France has a very strong culture of protest. Do, do you think that's part of it as well? Yes, maybe we have we have a kind of culture, but I I um I don't know because I, I'm not in in the US or I I don't know to compare it, but yes, we for sure we have. But we we also face difficulties to organize people like in every country, <laughs> I guess, because yes, for example, the trade union less and less powerful, there is less and less uh, people inside. We face difficulties to to organize people as uh, as everywhere. But maybe what we have is when you say a protest culture is that. It's true that we have protests almost every three, four years. There is big protest. But the difficulty the difficulty it can bring that is that people are used to protest, but we didn't win anything since years, since decades now. So also people are facing that okay, I can be organized myself, I can be on strike, I can I can take the street, I can be, make big de- demonstration, even violent demonstration as the yellow vest, and we don't win anything. So that's uh, the tricky thing. We always have to argue about that if we don't succeed to win the last the past years, it's because we were we were not enough people. And we have to be more and more and more and to and to make the the movement bigger and bigger. Yeah, I know the feeling. And right now, do you feel that there are people in the streets that are looking to anyone in the government? Is there any real leftist rep- representation in France? Because there absolutely is not in the United States. We have two right-wing parties. So is there any one looking to the government for support or is it just like, you know what, y'all are useless. We're going to do this on our own. In the government, actually, there is no, I, I think no. But in the parliament, I think, yes, there is this, always this tendency inside a, a big movement like uh, like we are in France. Like a, a belief that maybe leftist, reformist will help us. Yes, I think it's normal and it's part of the ideology around us. So yes, people like really spontaneously think that maybe we will have a parliamentary resolution of this conflict. And for example, when Macron used the 49.3 uh, text I uh, mentioned before, actually in uh, in the parliament in French parliament right now, there is a really a big instability because there is one in one way uh, Macron with his government and but he don't have a majority of MPs inside the parliaments. There is a lot of pro-Macron MPs inside the parliament, but they are not enough to vote the texts. So what and, and there is this Macron party in one side. The other side there is kind of a left coalition like really large coalition uh, with uh, socialists to uh, La France Insoumise. I don't know how to describe this party. It's like, 
it's reformist left party and then there is a, the uh, the far right wing of the parliament so there is three forces inside the parliament and when macron uh, decide to use the 49.3 uh, the this coalition called the, the left coalition called UPES, was saying we will bring uh, like uh, they propose the text to be voted inside the parliaments who can make the government fail and so people really trust that maybe this text will be voted and so the government of macron will have to leave and to to go and there will be new election actually it's almost arrived because there was only nine votes missing to make it. So it was really, I think that this moment was really interesting because a lot of people uh, was uh, thinking, yes, maybe, maybe we will not have uh, the reform vote because of uh, this uh, parliamentary text and uh, the other MPs voting for this and so on. But it didn't make the people stay at home uh, neither it's not it it was not like oh okay let them vote and we will see and it was more okay we have to put pressure and so we have to be more more and more people outside outside and also we start making road block we block the ro- the roads and we start to block also garbage companies and also uh, really strategical uh, companies to to put more pressure and when finally it wasn't vote the the night uh, people were outside and so i think that um even if there is this uh, normal belief that uh, mps will help us people are making uh, their own movements also good i'm i'm very glad to hear it and you said that there were nine it was nine short so where where does it stand now? I mean, what's what's the plan now, or what is what is Parliament planning to do now? Now, actually, the reform is voted. In a really uh, technical uh, point of view, uh, we we have this reform and it's finished, but it it's over. But actually, the movement is not over at all, and so so we we will see. Actually, we don't know. For me, it's really clear that. In this uh, period in France, there is so much instability, like inside the parliament, outside the parliament. I think that we 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 we, we don't know what will happen in one weeks, in two weeks. I uh, I think we cannot answer this question right now. I think we know what we have to do, but uh, what will happen, I don't know. That's a good way to put it. And when you said that, say the reform is voted on, you mean Macron's reform, so that passed. It's done now. Yeah, it's done. And I'm also curious, I, I didn't originally send you this question, but I remember reading about it, that there are also other tactics you mentioned, like setting up roadblocks and things like that, that uh, there are other um, other tactics like trying to ensure that certain places or companies don't get energy could you talk a little bit about these other tactics? Because I I find those incredibly fascinating. Yes. I think this is uh, it's really interesting because it's a direct 
legacy of Yellow Vest. I think it's uh, it, it, it's not like Yellow Vest didn't in uh, didn't create this uh, <laughs> this this practice, but uh, it was really something uh, really typical of the Yellow Vest movement, and it's interesting to see that there is a crossover between a more trade unionist habits and Yellow Vest habits, and like kind of mixing together. So since 49.3 was used by Macron. What happened is like at the, during the first night, people went outside and there was big demonstration in the cities everywhere. Like even small cities, people were outside and saying it's not possible and uh, it's a it's a lake of democracy. And then since so it was Thursday. 16th of March, and since then, every night there is demonstration in Paris, but also in small town, and also what just be just after is that people decide to to make the movement harder and to that's why I'm saying it's a mix between trade unionist and uh, yellow vest uh, practices because it's blocking, but with the support of the people on strike inside the company. And that's really interesting. For example, in Rennes, we start to block the garbage center of the town where there is all the big trucks. And we start blocking this with uh, random people, <laughs> like a part of the movement, but not working in the company, but with the support of the worker inside because they were not able to be on strike every day. Because they, they need to some uh, some money, so to to be on track every day was too complicated. So we agree with uh, with a common strategy, and uh, we start to to block since two weeks now, and there is still uh, no trucks collecting garbage in the cities, and it's I know it's the same in Paris and in other cities. Also, we start blocking refineries. So the places yeah. where there is fuel, yes, mm-hmm. Refiner- Refin- refineries, refineries, and it's the same that there is a big strike inside the refinery since the beginning of uh, the movement. But what's changed since two weeks now is that there is a lot of support from outside, and when the workers are in a bad position with uh, the bosses or with the police, there is support from other people and we are like, we are making the picket together. So yeah, it's really new. That's fantastic to hear. So so finally wrapping up here, I'm also curious because this is something that, that uh, we, we try to work on in the US as well as trying to build something and uh, building alternatives while we fight. So I'm curious if there's something similar in France, like building alternative communities or mutual aid organizing or or things like that, where people try to build the alternatives that they'd like to see in the midst of fighting the system. I think that actually the, the movement is the alternative by itself. Like, I mean, it's really concrete when, I, when I'm saying this, saying this. for example, um, with a big demonstration, 
it was really clear that uh, there is a lot of people uh, with uh, kids, for example. And now the police in France is so violent that it's really hard sometimes to bring uh, children to the demonstration. So there was a, a collective who decided to, to take care of the children during the demonstration. And it's called La, la Bulle like the bubble. And for every big demonstration, there is people taking care of the children. Or for example, I was uh, talking about the picket in front of the garbage uh, companies. People, people are here every day, every night. So they need wood. They need wood to make fire. And so there was spontaneously people bringing wood. Uh, there, was, there was a need of uh, tents to, to stay outside during the night. Uh, and now there is, I just saw just before the interview that uh, people bring a, a big screen and they were inviting people to uh, to a movie sc screening tonight. I mean, in front of the, the company. So I think that the alternative is like uh, when people are um, Uh, taking the con the conscious of uh, the way they, they they can do it, we can do it together, and we can take care of ourselves together, and we can uh, we can manage our own things together. And for me, that's that's the alternative, like right now, because we we need to eat to to keep warm, to take to to take care of the children, and so. So yes, the, the movement is doing it for himself. You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our show after this brief musical break, so stay with us. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again at the Project Censored Radio Show. We're very glad to be joined right now by Professor Wolf. Professor Richard D. Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. His books include The Sickness of Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, Understanding Socialism, 
and understanding Marxism. That can all be found at democracyatwork.info. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eleanor. Very, very glad to be here. So, Professor Wolf, there's quite a bit of worry at the moment about our lovely economic system faltering and buckling under the weight of its own greed. And as you pointed out many times, that this is by design. And it's actually been a pretty long stretch without a massive recession or depression. But then some smaller banks, small but with big clients like uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, collapsed. But officials keep saying that it's all good. There's nothing to worry about here, folks. Just mismanagement on their part. Nothing bigger at play here. What is your take on this? Are these banks the canaries in the coal mine? Well, you know, you never know in advance. I'm not going to engage in predicting what's going to happen because that's a fool's effort. Nobody can do that. I can't and nobody else can. But what that means is those that are assuring us that this is not a problem are wasting our time and their time uh, with that effort. A better way to understand it is to look at the context of what's going on in order to try to gauge a little bit of how serious this is. And uh, if you allow me, let me spend a couple of minutes kind of going through it. The punchline of what I'm about to say is that this is the worst condition that I have ever seen the American economy in my lifetime. And I know that that's true for many of the other people that are economists like me, that is, they've spent their lives trying to understand what the production of goods and services really is all about. I like to mention that my classmate at Yale University, where I got my PhD in economics, uh, most of my classmates were men. Very few women went into that field at that time. And so the few that did, you know, were in my memory because they were the only young women in the classes with us. And one of them who had the same teachers I did, read the same books and articles, took the same exams, and so really does know the field more or less like I learned it, was a woman named Janet Yellen. And uh, look how far she has come from those days back then. And I'm amazed because we're not friends, so I haven't kept up with her over all those years. But I know what she knows, and she knows pretty well what I know. And so I watch her, and either she's had a series of epiphanies that have changed her mind, or she's reading a script and knows better. And I'm afraid it's likely going to be the, the latter. And let me explain. We've just put the American working class, the mass of our people, through an absolutely extraordinary period of time. If you take the long view, 30 to 40 years, here are some of the enormous changes. The distribution of wealth and income, radically worse in terms of inequality now than it was 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. We've had a steady widening of the gap between rich and poor. Uh, that's already a profound shaker of an economic equilibrium. But now to get even more dramatic, we have had for the first time in a century of the United States, 
a serious, real economic competitor. For those of you who remember the Soviet Union, they may have been a military competitor. They may even have been in some way a political competitor, but they never were an economic competitor, never close. And they aren't today. Let me give you a simple statistic, which 99% of my audiences don't know. And that's no accident. The single most widely used measure of the size, the power, the wealth, the import, if you like, of an economic nation is something called GDP, the gross domestic product. In the most recent year, the GDP of Russia was one and a half trillion dollars. And in the most recent year, the GDP of the United States was $21 trillion. So understand this is a biblical David versus Goliath. The Russians are not an economic competitor to the United States and never were, nor was any other country until the last few years, when for the first time, the United States has a real economic competitor, namely the People's Republic of China. By the way, the GDP of China is about $15 trillion, way more than Russia, but still considerably less than the United States. And even though American businessmen and women love to make speeches about the salutary effects of competition, it is in fact the last thing they want to see or feel in any area. But now let me get to the last three or four years, and then you'll see the context for answering your question about the banks. We had an economic crash in the year 2020. It was the third crash of capitalism in the 21st century. The dot-com crash of early 20, the subprime mortgage crash of 28 and 29, and now the so-called COVID crisis of 2020. We like to give names to our uh, crashes uh, that are particular and different for each one in the hopes that it will obscure the reality that capitalism is a fundamentally unstable economic system. When I explain this to the students in my classes, I usually allow for a pregnant pause and I lean across, across the podium and I look at my students and I say, if any of you lived with a roommate as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. And they all laugh because somewhere they kind of get it, even if they're resisting. So anyway, we had a terrible crash in 2020, much more terrible than most people understand. Over half the workers in the United States lost their job. Unemployment peaked in 1933 in the Great Depression at 25%, but over 50% lost their jobs in 2020. Now, some for only a few weeks, some for years, but the point is it was catastrophic. And it shook the American working class like nothing has in a long time. When you're unemployed, we have endless data about this. If you have any savings, you use them up. Whatever stresses affect your life, 
they get worse if one of the adults in the room is unemployed. So we put the American working class through that. At the same time, this country experienced the worst public health disaster and failure to cope in our history, with over 1.1 million people dead. And before those things were even memories, we have had a terrible inflation. And before that was under control, because it isn't as I speak to you, we've begun to raise interest rates, and now the banks collapse. That's the point. Yeah, by themselves, none of these things is a catastrophe. But that's not the way to ask. The way to ask is to say, how much trauma, because that's what we're talking about, how much trauma to how many people in how many situations before things begin to explode? And my answer would be that the banks falling apart, uh, we're only at the early phase of that. That I'm confident of. Will there be more banks that fail? Absolutely. Which ones? Nobody knows. How soon? Nobody knows that either. There are already half a dozen that are teetering on the edge. Uh, the most famous right now in the United States is the First Republic Bank, which is one of the larger banks in this country. Even the two that collapse, people refer to them as small banks. Well, that's not quite accurate. They were the 15th and 16th largest banks in the country. And being a failed bank in Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley Bank, is no minor matter because one of the few bright spots of the American economy in this period of its difficulty is what we call high tech. It's, it's the peninsula from San Jose to San Francisco. For the bank there to fall apart suggests weaknesses, not just scattered across a country, but concentrated in the last place you want to hamper or undermine economic growth, the risk-taking, and so forth. So if you put all of this together, as I think you need to, then you're talking about an economy that is in very, very bad shape in not a position to have yet another catastrophe. You know, I could take the next hour, I won't, don't worry, but I could take the next hour and go through a list of the other weaknesses of the American economy. They're all going to play out. And all that's covering them, if you allow me, is a very thick layer of from Biden, from the Republicans. They both need for different reasons to pretend that none of this is all that serious. The Democrats, because they need to pretend they've got everything under control. And the Republicans, who can only pick for criticism those things that won't offend their donors. And since their donors are the bulk of the capitalist class, they don't have much freedom either. You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. Now back to our conversation with economist, author, and show host, Richard Wolff. I did want to ask, because you'd mentioned China and this issue of having another power battling, battling with our hegemony. And I saw recently, it was on Twitter, I wasn't watching Fox News, everyone, don't worry. 
Fox News, if you can believe it, recently did a segment, of course it was skewed, but on how Russia and potentially Saudi Arabia are turning to the yuan for international payments rather than the dollar. And that, of course, as you've already pointed out, represents a massive shift in the U.S. reserve currency status. So what does that mean? I mean, you're, you've, you've outlined many of the things that are wrong with our economy, but what does this one specifically mean for the U.S. economy? Well, here what you have, I'm really glad you asked, here what you have is a related but separate issue. The United States as an economy is in difficulty, and part of the causes of that and part of the effects of that are that, and there's no nice way to say this, so I'm going to be blunt. The American empire has peaked. It's on the way down. The ride up the last century is a lot more pleasant than the ride down of an empire. Here's the way I think to understand it. We have had since World War II, the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and the United States has lost every single one of them. They are not winning in Ukraine either. One of the foundations of the American empire were the fact that whereas before world trade had mostly used the British pound, if a ship went from Africa to Japan, the insurance for that was written in London. The contracts for servicing the ships or providing them with the necessary fuel, all that was done in London. It was done in British pounds. The United States replaced the British Empire, literally, and the dollar became the great global currency. The reason that's wonderfully important is, and it can be explained this way, where does the rest of the world get dollars from? Because they have to hold them. Banks hold them as a reserve to show that their currency is something you can you can accept a, a Swedish corner or a, a Dutch, any currency, because the bank of that country holds dollars as the reserve. And you're willing to take their currency because you could cash it in for dollars if you were so disposed. So the dollar is accumulated in those banks. The dollar is accumulated in the accounts of businesses that have to transact globally in dollars. The uh, petroleum producers of the world have for decades billed everybody for selling them oil in dollars. So if Saudi Arabia sells oil to Sweden, the bill is paid in dollars. The Swedish company draws on a dollar account somewhere and sends a check or a wire to Saudi Arabia. Well, how do they get, ask yourself, how do they get the dollar? Answer, they ship goods and services to the United States, things that their working people have produced, you know, Japanese electronics, French wine, and they get in return little cheap green pieces of paper that cost absolutely nothing to produce. They can either hold that, and they do much of that, end of story, just sits there in their vaults, or, and you'll love this now, they lend it to the United States government. They use their dollars 
to loan to what are buying what are called treasury bonds. They lend it to the treasury so that part of the cost of the American government, we don't have to tax our own people or our own businesses because the kind folks in the rest of the world have produced goods and services, shipped them to the United States, gotten the payment in dollars, and lent those dollars to the United States. So what you saw with Saudi Arabia, and you cannot exaggerate the importance of that, having the, the foreign minister of China hosting the Iranian foreign minister and the Saudi foreign minister announcing that the Sunni and Shiite portions of Islam are going to stop killing each other, send embassies to each other's countries, try to live in peace. I mean, look at the symbol. China is the peacemaker of the Middle East, which the United States has been unable to do, assuming it was really trying, for decades. It really is a passing of the baton. It, it's a it's a sign, and that you that it's that they're going to trade in yuan, which is already happening. I don't know if you're aware, but Russia has agreed to accept payment for its oil from China in yuan. I believe it is accepting the Indian currency from India because it's shipping a lot of oil and gas to them, and you're beginning to to see the outlines of the emerging alternative to the American empire, which has these initials that people better learn, BRICS, B-R-I-C-R-A, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, with about a dozen other countries that have either already applied for membership in BRICS or have announced that they intend to. This is, you put that together with the Belt and Road Initiative, the the investment program from China to Europe, and you're beginning to see the outlines of what's coming. So with that, I know that we're coming to the end of the interview here, but I want to ask, not because I think that there is necessarily a silver lining, as you said, the the way down in the empire is bumpier than the way up, but I do keep seeing Starbucks workers going on strike, Amazon workers going on strike, teachers going on strike. I wish the rail workers had gone on strike, but there's still there's still discussions about that. There seems to be, since the decimation of the unions and the decimation of socialist organizations and these leftist workers associations, there seems to be a revitalization of that happening right now. Do you feel that that's true? And if so, do you feel that there is a silver lining there that could not save the U.S. economy, but work to support people as we continue through this very difficult time? Yes. Um, the short answer to your question is, I am amazed at the level of militancy that has arisen here in the United States. I think it portends really good possibilities. I'm optimistic about those. I don't think those are going to go away. I'm noticing how important women are in this process, immigrants are in this process, young people are in this process. Those are all crucial components of a more successful labor upsurge than we had last time. But I think I'm most excited about what has not yet arrived on the shores of the United States 
but is very profound. And I'm talking about France, Germany, and Greece. And Americans particularly have to understand the French are stunning. Millions of people, now the ninth time in a row, have kept it up. And they're in the street, and they're showing that the French Revolution from 1789 right through the yellow vests from before the pandemic are alive and well. But that's not all. Then there's the Germans. The Germans, starting a couple of days ago, shut down the entire transport system. The airplanes, the trains, nothing moves. They didn't even have a railroad disaster like we did here in East Palestine, Ohio. They didn't. But they are determined that the inflation, which is killing them because of their energy prices, part of the Russia-NATO sanction game, they're not allowing themselves to be the victims. You're going to squeeze the working class of Germany in order to free the resources to go fight Russia in the Ukraine. I mean, the image, you know, my family is French and German. I'm an American, but my my folks came here from there. The image of German tanks rolling eastward killing Russians. If you wanted to mobilize the Russian people behind their leader, nothing would get even close to doing that than what you just, the stupidity of this. And then the last one, Greece. The same time we had a railway disaster, which was bad, they had a railway disaster, which was much worse. It killed almost 60 people, most of them young students either going to their their school holiday or coming back from it, I don't remember. And the people of Greece went into a kind of mourning and a kind of anger. Their conservative government had recently privatized the railroads. The private railroad companies weren't maintaining the safety, just like in the United States. There, the people of Greece went in the hundreds of thousands into the streets, confronting the government. And you can see in Germany, in Greece, in France, the same issues as here. And my feeling is it's going to come here, one or another form. It always comes to the United States later and slower and more moderate. And But, you know, with all of that, it's coming. We're not that different from the Greeks or the French or the Germans. And the real difference is in those countries collective action to solve a social problem is in people's minds. Whereas in the United States, we're still stuck in the individualism. We really imagine that each of us in our own way can slither out, escape the social problem, work around it, solve it. And when that breaks down, there's a moment of intense loneliness, but it's often coupled with a kind of eureka moment where working together with other people becomes the other solution you hadn't thought about. It's happening to the workers at Starbucks, at Amazon, at Trader Joe, at fill in the blank. And I think it's coming to the American people. You know, the, the Great Depression, we had an upsurge of an American working class sharply going to the left. There's no reason to believe that that cannot and will not happen again. We want to smash, crash, blast, mass, blast.
the system, we wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission, we want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting, we and that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies, another guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity, citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential. If you ain't at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that Rhythm is hitting, we wanna make it clear. We ain't scared, this is the vision we want.